North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's giving $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10. Blog Talk Radio. Well, hello, everyone. You've tuned in to Dr. Low Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Lauren Noel, naturopathic doctor, and you are tuning into the very best in natural medicine and nutrition. Thanks for joining us again for another wonderful show. Hey, if you guys missed last week's show, I really, really recommend it. It was a really unique kind of show that we've had before. Um, it was with Michael Russer, and we were talking about achieving extraordinary intimacy, and we got pretty personal on that show, and uh, I really think that for anyone who is in uh, an intimate relationship or who would like to have one at some point soon, um, listen to the show. It was uh, really refreshingly real and raw, and uh, just kind of got very personal with myself and also with Michael, and um, Michael's story was really cool. He, uh, a couple years ago, had... Um, prostate cancer and had a complete prostate removal and since then has had uh, total impotence. And uh, he's talking about how that experience actually has been a, a total blessing for him and his partner and just what it's been like um, having a relationship with a woman um, when he himself has been impotent and what it's been like just th- just completely kind of uh, dispelling all of the... Uh, you know, sort of the things that we normally think about with intimacy. And it was just really refreshing. So I encourage you guys to all listen to that show. Any of the uh, previous shows I've done, you can check out all of those on my website, drlaurennoel.com, and just go to the podcast link there, and you'll see all the shows. And, oh, my gosh, I just forgot. Tonight's show is my 100th episode. I'm so excited that I just remembered that, and it's with our – coolest guest, Chris Kresser, and he's back on the show, and he's talking about his very exciting announcement that his his new book, Your Personal Paleo Code, is being released very, very soon, just in time for Christmas, and I'm so excited that he is able to be on the show for the 100th episode. I feel like that was just meant to be. So, as I totally gave away the surprise, Chris Kresser is our guest on the show again. He is a practitioner of integrative and functional medicine, and of course the creator of the very popular chriscresser.com. His uh, personal paleo code is based on more than 100, or, sorry, 100, <laughs> I'm thinking 100 because it's my 100th episode, 10 years of research, probably 100 years really for how smart he is. Uh, he's one, he is, um, He's uh, recovered from uh, debilitation, chronic illness, and uh, his clinical work with patients. So all of these put together has been uh, the material for his book. He maintains a private practice in Berkeley, California, where he lives with his wife and his daughter. And I have had the opportunity to meet him a few times at uh, various paleo uh, conferences. So, Chris, thanks so much for being back on the show. Welcome to Dr. Low Radio. Lauren, it's a pleasure to be here again. How cool is it, right? Episode number 100, and you I get know. to be on my show. First of all, congratulations for your 100th episode, and I'm honored to be the guest on that momentous occasion. Thank you. I was uh, going to shoot you an email in and tell you, but it's just been kind of a crazy week, so I get to tell you on the air. Um, I couldn't think of a better guest to uh, to join me in that, so thanks for, for being back on the show, and I'm so excited for you and your book. Congratulations. Thanks very much. I do yeah. want to um, point something out, which is, uh, has been a little confusing. Originally, the publication date was Christmas Eve, um, a week from now, and that got moved actually about a month ago to December 31st, which is New Year's oh, Eve. Oh, so, cool. But well, they're both cool oh. dates. 
Yeah. Yeah, they're both great dates. The, the downside is it's not available for Christmas, although it probably wouldn't have been anyways being shipped on Christmas Eve. But, uh, you know, the whole the vagaries of the publishing world can sometimes be opaque, and there are a lot of reasons for doing it. But uh, it, it's not too long anyways now, a couple weeks away. Oh, wow, it's just a countdown. So can people already purchase the advanced copy for your book? Yeah, they can pre-order it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, all the typical locations, and it will be available yeah, as a hardcover, but also as a Kindle and Fire and I, uh, iBook and uh, Audiobook and any number of other formats, yeah. so however you'd <laughs> like to consume it, we'll, we'll do Very it. Very cool. So it's your personal paleo code. How does it feel to be a published author? Uh <laughs> you know, a lot of people have asked me that question, and you know, I, I got <laughs> the final <laughs> copy of the book um, you know, a week ago, and uh, I think what it is, Lauren, is I'm just so busy still and in pre- preparing for the book launch and getting the book tour ready and or totally revamping my website and a whole bunch of things like that that I haven't had a moment to really stop and, and savor the <laughs> the uh the occasion but i i think yeah. when it it'll probably hit me we're doing a big book launch party in berkeley um that is it, it's sold out there's going to be 250 people there and um, awesome. rob wolf is flying out and some of my friends and family from around here and lots of uh people that i'm excited to meet so i i imagine that's when it might hit me the first time when i sit down and start <laughs> signing books and, and people are handing me my book to sign i, I think that's when it might happen yeah I know for myself with the the, the clinic, my, my new clinic, Shine, I, it didn't hit me until the at the grand opening. We had already been open for a couple months, and I'm looking around at a couple hundred people going, whoa, this actually yeah. just happened. Yeah, <laughs> you know? Exactly. Yeah. That's really cool. Um, well, one of the things I love about your book is you talk about how to live this paleo lifestyle in the midst of a crazy life. And I know for you, you're really, really busy. How have you been able to kind of maintain this sense of health and balance through through this whole process well it's I'll, it, I'll, I'll be frank it's definitely been tenuous at times <laughs> even for me when you know, I'm someone who puts a, a big value on maintaining that kind of balance as you know mm-hmm. uh, it can be challenging in the midst of I have a two two and a half year old daughter family and um, the, all of the responsibilities writing the book, and I'm also still seeing patients, and I, of course, mm. have the blog, and I have my radio show as well, my podcast. So none of that stopped while I was writing the book. Um, so it was challenging, definitely, at times to maintain that. But it, there were a few things that I did that really helped me to maintain my sanity and my health. The the, the biggest thing, I would say, was, was setting up a treadmill desk. And mm. the story behind that was I, I don't generally do well sitting for long periods I never have and for the first maybe three or four weeks of writing the book I was sitting you know for really long periods and I just was feeling crappy at the end of every day and I was still at the very beginning phases of the book and I was just thinking how am I going to do this without destroying my health and in the back of my mind I had remembered tweets and, and conversations with uh, Rob Wolf and Diane Sanfilippo saying things like, writing a, a health book was the most unhealthy thing I've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't want that to be me. So I ended up setting up a treadmill desk, and that really saved me, I think, because in, instead of writing being an unhealthy time where I was just sitting for really long periods, it actually became a time where I was moving almost constantly. And I tracked 
the movement during the entire course of writing the book, and I think I walked over 2,000 miles while walking the, while writing the book. Wow! Um, so that was a, a huge transformation for me, and and really helped me to like feel good at the end of the day, even if it was a big writing day, and I wrote for several hours. And in fact, I, I, strangely enough, I on the days where I wasn't writing and I was away from my office, I I would sometimes miss writing because I would get more exercise on those days. I was walking like 16 to 18,000 or maybe even 20,000 steps a day on my writing days. So that was one of the big things. And then the other thing was just being really disciplined about scheduling self-care into my day. Um, So I would actually write it into my calendar just like any other important appointment and no matter what was going on, when that reminder popped up for that appointment, I would just drop what I was doing and, and go do my sitting meditation practice or, um, you know, go outside and jump rope and run up and down my mm-hmm. stairs or, you know, whatever it is that I had scheduled with myself. So those those things helped me to manage. And as I said, it, it, it wasn't always perfect. There were definitely some weeks where I just felt like I was overwhelmed and uh, <laughs> I didn't know how I was going to yeah. make it. it well, all what I hear out. in that is that they're not, these are not, not they are non-negotiables for you. These are things that you know, and and you have your priorities straight. That's what I hear from that. It's like, yeah, it's important to have your book launch, but the most important thing by far is your own health. So it's really Absolutely. a great example for your patients too, because let's be honest, your patients don't want you to be unhealthy while you're treating them. You know, I'm sure it's important no. for them that you're healthy. No, I mean, I, I I'm keenly aware of that. That you know, it's the height of hypocrisy to be suggesting all these things to my patients and not be modeling them myself. At the same time, it's also important to model that I'm not perfect and I'm, you know, I sure. get stuck like everybody else does and that it's 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 a challenge for me to maintain it. And if it wasn't, I wouldn't be a very good teacher of it. I'm sure you've experienced this. The people who are who tend to be the best teachers of, of a certain modality or practice are the ones that have generally struggled to get there themselves. Uh, if it comes very easy to you, you're, you're probably not going to be able to communicate it very well to somebody mm-hmm. else that's struggling with it. Yeah, totally. And that's probably why most, many healthcare practitioners, many of the best healthcare practitioners are people that have their own story of struggle with illness because they can mm-hmm. empathize with and relate to patients as you know who are who are dealing with those same issues because they've been there themselves. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, we can empathize for sure. Well, I'm I'm really excited about your book. I've I've had it in the IV therapy lounge at the clinic, and patients have had an opportunity to read through it while they're getting their IVs. And I think they feel really special that they're getting, you know, a cop, or, you know, they're able to get a sneak peek of it before it's really yeah. out. So that's been really cool. Um, but you know, I, I love that you have incorporated so many things into your book beyond just nutrition, but actually looking at sort of the whole paleo lifestyle. You know, beyond just diet, but looking at lifestyle, looking at uh, you know, social support, um, the importance of moving like a caveman, and, and on, on and on. So I just want to commend you on the, the work you've done. It's really, really great. And one of the things I would love to dive into first, and I think sometimes this is sort of seen as like, yeah, if you can do it, this is important, but but the importance of social support, that's one of the biggest things I got out of your book, is the, that yeah. uh, you had a really cool study that you said that a study in, in 2010 found that social support was a stronger predictor of survival than physical activity, body mass index, hypertension, air pollution, 
alcohol consumption, and even smoking 15 cigarettes a day. I thought that was just amazing. amazing. It's incredible. I just wanted to dive into that a little bit. Yeah. I would say that's got to be like one of the top five studies that I reviewed for the book, and (laughs) and there are over 800 references in the book, so that's saying something. Um, Yeah, it's really, that was one of my favorite chapters to write and research because it's something that, as you said, is so often dismissed as, you know, most people will nod their head and say, yeah, yeah, I, I, I get that, I agree, I understand. But when it comes to actually putting it into practice, it's not so easy. It's definitely not as easy as just taking a supplement or even changing your diet because right. um, it requires deeper life changes and, and even changing our relationship with ourselves sometimes in order to make that happen. For example, if you're the kind of person that doesn't, that has, you know, doesn't value yourself, uh, it's going to be really hard for you to invite this kind of support into your life because it's not something that will come easily. You know, it Mm -hmm. it will always feel like there's something else you should be doing or there's some other um, more worthy task other than self-care if you don't really value yourself. So that's the sort of thing that's not necessarily easy to change overnight. But what all of these studies suggest is that social support and connection are really, really crucial to our well-being as humans and have been for as long as we've been human and and longer. You know, if you look at primate societies, touch is, is really integral part of these societies. So um, primates tend to groom each other, and it's been speculated for a long time that that grooming, uh, one of the main purposes of the grooming isn't just to keep uh, keep the animals clean, but to... Uh, the the hormonal response and the sense of intimacy and closeness that they get from that kind of grooming. And just like an hour before the show, Stefan Guillene, a, a colleague of ours, mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of your listeners have heard of, uh, he's a scientist at the University of Washington, he tweeted a link out to a study that showed that oxytocin reduces overeating that's associated with uh, a certain type of activity in the brain. And oxytocin is is a hormone that's been referred to as the tend and befriend hormone. It's produced at, in the highest amounts during sexual activity, but it's also produced in large amounts with intimate touch and, and contact, massage, things like that. So what this study was showing was that uh, this, you know, social support, social contact, pleasure, physical connection can actually release hormones that in turn lead to uh, or would reduce the tendency to overeat. So um, quite literally we could say that physical touch could have an impact on the obesity epidemic and help people Mm -hmm. to regulate their weight. So there are real and tangible benefits here. It's not just a question of touch being important for our emotions and our psychology, it's also a question of touch being vital for our physiology as well. Mm, That's so interesting. It gives another view of the cause of some of this obesity epidemic of looking at how our our culture has changed so much from being more tribal and, you know, collectivist in nature to more individualized and, you know, text messaging and emailing and not even calling people back. And I'm guilty of it too. But it's it's really interesting, and that's what I love about your book is that it goes more into just you know diet, but also looking at sort of the tribal components of a paleo lifestyle. Um, mm-hmm. And and it really, it's not even just like this you know pie in the sky thing we're talking about, but there's some actual real, real research that that supports 
the, uh, the the amazing healing benefit of social of social support. Yeah, so, I mean, it can't get any more real than the social support being a better predictor of early death than right. smoking 15 uh, cigarettes a day. And yeah. you may remember from the book that there's also, or you may have known this already probably, but uh, if in, in infants are not touched, they will die often. Mm, um, right. And some, some early studies... Um, with uh, in orphanages, some really sad, sad research uh, found that to be true. And and then uh, I forget her name, but one scientist that I quoted in the book came up with the phrase "touch hunger" to uh, indicate a, a kind of more common phenomenon now, in especially in industrialized countries, in, in the U.S. in particular, in Europe. Uh, touch is not so taboo, but in the U.S., because of concerns about litigation, we really don't touch each other <laughs> anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, clinicians are te- uh, or psychi- psychiatrists and psychologists and, and practitioners are, are sort of terrified to touch their patients because of concern about litigation. And just in the popular culture overall, you don't see touch outside of intimate relationships that much. And so this scientist uh, has coined this phrase, touch hunger, to indicate that we are we're really designed to have touch in our lives and when we when it's when it's missing we uh we're subject to the consequences of that it's not just again it's not just a kind of question of uh emotional and psychological impacts there are real physical impacts from that sure and you talked also about the uh some of the physiolo- physiological effects of um of endorphins mm-hmm. the pleasure releasing uh chemicals mm-hmm that endorphins in, improve immune function, they enhance, you know, uh, the the white blood cell, the killer instinct of them, antibacterial substances. So that's, I think that's fascinating too. It gives in a whole other view of someone who's chronically sick of actually using, you know, things that create joy for them and things that make them happy as being part of their treatment plan. Absolutely. I mean, it's uh, there's a, a great book that I have on my shelf that was one of the books I used in my research uh, called Feeling Good is Good for You. And I read this a long time ago when I was struggling with my illness still. And there was actually a period of time, about six, five or six years into my 10-year, 10 10-year-plus 10 journey, where I was completely demoralized. I had tried everything. I mean, hmm. special diets, supplements, medications. I had flown all, all to three different countries to see some of the top specialists around the world. Uh, I had moved to Esalen to explore the emotional and psychological aspects of the illness, the retreat center in Big Sur. I had studied Chinese medicine, Western medicine. I mean, I had done, there was no stone that was unturned, and I was still sick. And so I just had, from that place, it occurred to me that there, you know, if I was going to keep going, I needed to recharge my batteries and I needed to stop focusing as much on diet and and treatments and all of that and just nourish myself on the most on the deepest level that I could. And so I basically created a feeling good <laughs> program where awesome. I made sure to get regular massage and acupuncture. I took walks with friends in in the park and on the beach. I actually scheduled those into my week. I was doing some acting and improvisation, which has always been a really joyful, fun thing for me to do. Uh, (laughs) And I basically didn't 
pay much attention to what I ate. I mean, I naturally eat a pretty healthy diet, so I didn't go totally off the rails. But uh, there were times where if my friends were going out somewhere and I and they were going somewhere that wasn't, you know, where they, they didn't have food that I would typically eat, I would eat it because at that time the pleasure and the joy of being with my friends was paramount and uh, I just didn't want to have those the, the diet and the supplements and all that in the foreground. And that I really t- that was when I really turned the corner. One of the things that really helped me turn the corner, I was really able to, it really did recharge my batteries, that like gave me a new perspective, it increased, I, I had a, uh, went from being pretty down and quite desperate to feeling hopeful and ha- having a positive outlook. And, and then from there, I was able to dive back into the, exploration of the diet and supplements and things like that with with more uh, with more focus than I would have been able to because I was just I was feeling so isolated and and uh, just kind of down and out after being sick for so many years sure and I'm sure that had a, a huge impact on the way that you treat your patients seeing them more than just their labs and giving them a supplement but actually asking them about you know how's their lifestyle are they do they have a social support? Do they have friends, family? Do they go have fun? Or are they just, you know, looking at their treatment plan and just taking a supplement for all of these yeah. things that they're dealing with, right? Yeah, definitely. And I, I, uh, you know, to to really, I, I think a lot about the treatment encounter, and I'm, I'm constantly trying to figure out ways that these kind of things could be incorporated more. Because as you, as I'm sure you know, as a clinician, there's so much to cover in a small in a short period of time and and even for someone like me who spends more time with patients than you know a, a, a conventional doctor working in the HMO system would there's still uh it, the time often still feels short sure yeah yeah for sure i've even uh, the only thing i prescribed in certain patient visits is i want you to go to a comedy show like, yep. that's it. Just go to a comedy show, just get out of your head, just laugh a little bit. It's amazing, just the power of that. I'm, I'm, well, I'm curious about that, too. I'm sure you know of research actually looking at laughter, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, this this uh, this has actually kind of gotten into the popular meme a little bit with, th- like, the Patch Adams movie. And, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I think a lot of people are, are somewhat aware now that laughter does have really um, positive benefits. And, in fact... In that book I mentioned, and in my book, I, meant, I, I refer to laughter as one of the important, uh, one of the strategies that you can do for creating that endorphin release. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I find the endorphins, as you do, really fascinating because there's a lot of research now in the, in the world of autoimmune disease on a medication called low-dose naltrexone. And the speculation on... Uh, well, let me step back. So this is a, a low dose of a drug that's been used to successfully treat Crohn's disease, uh, fibromyalgia, multiple sclerosis, and some other autoimmune conditions. And it has virtually no side effects, no long-term known complications or risks, and it's a lot more effective than many of the other much more dangerous treatments for conditions like that. So it's really exciting. Um, and the speculation for how it works is that it upregulates endogenous endorphin production. So, it, in other words, it makes you produce more of your own endorphins. And 
we now know that white blood cells in the body have receptors for these endorphins. And so if you increase the endorphin production, uh, they play an immunoregulatory role and help keep the immune system in balance. And there's also research that suggests that many people with autoimmune disease have a deficiency of endorphins. So anything that produces endorphins, whether that's exercise or sex or physical, other kinds of physical contact or touch or laughter or listening to music or playing music, anything that creates pleasure and joy and re- releases endorphins could actually directly prevent and treat autoimmune disease or other immune, uh, immune-mediated disorders. Wow. That is fascinating. That's really, really cool. And it's cool, too, because I think that it takes a lot of the pressure off of we have to know exactly what's going on and take the exact supplement. It's like, yeah, maybe, but it's also really important just to go and enjoy your life and be connected to people. So I I really love that. Um, One of the parts of your book that um, really sits with me, and actually you, uh, I remember you talking about this on one of your podcasts about how to be productive without losing your health. I don't remember the exact title, but that was so helpful Mm for me. was the uh, the harmful effects of sitting. You said that adults who yeah. sit for more than six hours a day had up to a 40% greater risk of death over the next 15 years compared to those who sat for less than three hours a day regardless of whether they exercised. I thought that was really yeah. fascinating. I'd love to dive into that, but also I'd also love to know about people who can't necessarily um, walk, maybe someone who's in a wheelchair, for example. Like, yeah. How would that translate yeah. into someone like that? Mm-hmm. So... This research, I mean, uh, I saw a headline, I think it was on Facebook or something the other day. I, it's not mine, so I can't claim it, but I really liked it, so I'm going to appropriate it. And it was uh, sitting is the new smoking, which I thought was a, a catchy way of putting it. Um, so, yeah, the, uh, the idea is that, uh, as you said, uh, sitting is harmful even when you're getting enough exercise. I think that's the most important thing to understand. I, I don't think mm-hmm. most many people would be surprised to learn that sitting in a chair for 9 or 10 hours a day is not healthy. Um, that's not going to raise any eyebrows. But I think a lot of people might be under the impression that as long as they go to the gym three or four times a week and get the recommended amount of cardiovascular exercise and strength training, they'll be okay uh, in spite of the fact that they're sitting for that long. And what the research shows is that, no, actually, even if you get the recommended amount of exercise, like 150 minutes a week of moderate activity, if you're sitting for the majority of the rest of your, uh, of your hours, then you're going to be at significantly higher risk for disease and death. And that's even true of marathon runners. There was a, a study mm-hmm. I remember that showed that some marathon runners are actually more likely to sit when they're not running because they feel like they're getting plenty of exercise so there's you know they don't this is speculation on the researchers part that they they felt like they didn't really need to uh, move around as much when they're not uh, exercising but in fact even if they're doing that kind of vigorous exercise and they're sitting for a lot of hours uh throughout the day it it's it can be problematic um as for someone who's in a wheelchair I don't have a lot of expertise in that area because that's not a population that I work with typically, so I'm probably not the best person to ask, but I imagine there are physical therapy exercises that can be done uh, that that can help uh, maintain some level of activity. 
I think another question that comes up a lot for people is, what if I have a desk job? You know, what if I work in an office and I can't get a treadmill desk like you, Chris? I mean, a lot of people have said, my patients have asked me that question. Um, I'm fortunate to, you know, I have a clinic where I see patients, uh, but I also have a home office where I do a lot of my writing and things like that, and, and, you know, I can set that up however I want, but not everybody has that luxury. So there are a lot of simple things that you can do even in an office environment where you don't have control over the environment. So one is just to take frequent breaks. So every there's a study that showed that if you simply sit up from your chair every 40 minutes and take a two-minute break where you're standing up and walking or doing some light stretching, you know, you walk over to get a glass of water or tea or something like that, and then you come back and sit right da- right back down, that alone can mitigate many of the harmful effects of sitting. So that's not that big of a thing, and a lot of people, you know, pretty much everybody could do that. Um, you you might need to get a so- uh, some software for your computer, like Timeout on the Mac or WorkRave on a PC that, that uh, which I have installed on my computer, uh, timeout, and that I have it set so that every 40 minutes this little thing pops up and it kind of grays out your screen, and it's a little timer and it says you know timeout, and then so I'll, if I'm immersed in something, uh, when I see that I'll get up and you know jump some rope or do some push-ups or do something like that if I'm sitting, uh, because I also do have a sitting desk that I alternate back and forth with. So you can integrate physical activity throughout your day. Uh, you can do things like take walking meetings. If you have a meeting with someone, instead of sitting down and doing it, suggest that you go on a walk with them outside of the office and talk. You can do things like if you take public transportation to work, you can purposely miss your stop, you know, either overshoot it or undershoot it, and walk for the, the, the additional uh, distance to work. You can even, if you drive, you can drive and park, you know, several blocks from your office, walk to work. You can take stairs instead of the elevator. If you, I think it's just a mindset. Once you really commit to being more active and and you start tracking your activity with things like a Fitbit or any other kind of pedometer that measures your steps throughout the day, you'll find many different opportunities to be active where you weren't before no matter what your work situation is. Yeah, for sure. And and the the whole excuse I don't have time to do it. I got to finish this one, you know, task. It's just it doesn't mm-hmm. fly because this is the most important thing you can do is your health. Otherwise the other stuff yeah. is, it doesn't, you know, doesn't matter. Not only doesn't it it doesn't it fly, it's as you know from listening to the podcast, there's a lot of research that shows that physical activity significantly increases productivity. So if you're thinking to yourself, I don't have time to exercise because I have all this stuff to do, chances are that exercising will help you do your stuff a lot faster and more efficiently than if you don't exercise. And Mm -hmm. I definitely found that to be true with the writing of the book. I think uh, in addition to the treadmill desk kind of saving me, me physically, it also made the book go really, the writing of the book go really smoothly. I was able to write it in in a pretty... Uh, the manuscript when I finished it was about seven hundred and seven hundred and twenty pages or something. Whoa! Uh, so and I wrote that in probably six or seven months. So Your machine. It, it definitely increased my productivity. <laughs> um, 
I, I assure you the book is not 720 pages, so don't worry. Uh, a lot of that material was cut and put on the website and will be a, available in the form of bonus chapters. There's over 200 pages of bonus chapters that are free to anyone who buys the book. But the wow. point is uh, exercise really stimulates your brain and it will make you perform better at whatever it is that you're doing. So as, as you said, Lauren, there really is no excuse, especially when you're integrating it throughout your day. And a good reminder for me that you outlined in your book is it, location of where you exercise actually matters. So compared with exercising indoors, outdoor mm-hmm. exercise, you said, is associated with greater feelings of revitalization and positive engagement, decreases in tension, confusion, anger, depression, and increased energy. So bringing mm-hmm. in that whole nature aspect, fresh air, sunshine. So that to me was really, um, that was a good standout part of the book that I, I forgot about that. <coughs> Excuse me, absolutely. And to, to get back to our earlier discussion on social contact, social support and connection, there's also research that, that suggests that exercising with other people may have unique benefits that exercising alone doesn't have. Hmm. So the kind of optimal thing would be exercising outdoors with a group of people, that, that you're, t- you're checking off all the boxes there. And, again, that's not always possible, and don't let that be an excuse not to, you know, do any activity at all. But uh, things where you're, you're doing it with a friend, like uh, cycling in a group or playing tennis with other people or any kind of team sport, I think that's why teams, one of the reasons why team sports are so popular um, particularly the ones that are done outdoors, like playing soccer or something like that. So um, the, a lot of this, again, is probably fairly intuitive, but it's really interesting for me at least to see the research um, supporting it, and I think that adds some validity and weight to it, So, and it makes these recommendations uh, more substantial than they would be otherwise. Mm-hmm. And even you, you mentioned uh, symptoms of ADHD, that there's, some data showing that just a little time outdoors can reduce the symptoms of ADHD, even in kids that failed to respond to medication. That's right. That's right. And this is a huge problem. I don't know if you saw the article in the Sunday New York Times yesterday. It was, I forget the exact title, but it was something about the the selling of ADHD and, and how the marketing of it as a disorder has dramatically increased the, the diagnoses of ADHD. And The gist of the article was that there's no doubt uh, that ADHD is a legitimate disorder. And, uh, you know, I don't don't think anyone disputes that at this point. But even the the doctor who really led the fight early on to legitimize ADHD as a disorder has come out and called the really dramatic increase in diagnoses of it over the past decade or, or, or 15 years a national catastrophe and... He's called it, you know, a thinly veiled excuse to prescribe unjustifiable amounts of medication. And so I think this research on the effects of physical activity and outdoor activity on kids with ADHD is really crucial because we're living in a time now where 10 to 15 percent of kids are being labeled with this disorder. And what they really may be suffering from is a lack of social connection, a lack of support, and a lack of... uh, and, and not enough time outside, not enough contact with nature. So uh, I, I'm really hopeful that this word can get out, uh, not just through my book, but there's another great book on this subject called um, uh, Lost, 
Last Child in the Woods uh, by Richard Louv, I think, and he coined the term nature deficit disorder to describe what many kids are suffering from today. And, uh, of course, the prescription, you know, what do you think the prescription is for nature deficit disorder? Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> time outside in nature. So that's, that's something I, I'm really excited about. I'm sure most of us have a bit of nature deficit disorder, especially how much we are genetically designed to be spending, you know, how much time we're designed to be outdoors. Wow, it's really good reminders for us. I love that. Um, Cool. Well, let's switch gears a little bit to talk more about some of the nutrition that you talk about in your your Mm -hmm. book. It's just jam-packed with so much information about nutrition, which I love. That's my first love and what brought me to do what I do. So it was very, very um, fun to read through that, especially looking at, um, organ meats, you know, the importance mm-hmm. of that, the importance of fat in your diet. I loved um, a part of your book where you said fat improves the absorption of important nutrients. And a really cool little fun fact, adding an avocado to a green salad increases the absorption of beta-carotene by 18-fold. That's crazy yeah. to me. Big time. Just by adding some fat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really that's, cool. a, that's something that's really often overlooked and, and certainly with the whole low-fat uh, mantra that was we were, was drilled into our heads for so many years. It's a basic biochemical fact that some of the nutrients, many of the nutrients actually in fruits and vegetables and other foods that we eat require some fat for absorption. And so if you eat a salad with no dressing, which was you know, popular for a while, I think it's less so mm-hmm. now, uh, you're not going to get the benefits of the nutrients and the vegetables in that salad. And and that study is just a really uh, clear indicator of that. But there are other examples, too, where, you know, especially with the fat-soluble vitamins like vitamin A and vitamin D and vitamin K2 and vitamin E, those are particularly, uh, they especially require fat, as, as, as the name implies, they're, fat, they're, they're fat-soluble, and um, they're really important in the diet, and they're really difficult some of them are really difficult to find in, t- in typically eaten foods. For example, uh, vitamin A, preformed vitamin A, which is called retinol, is really only found in substantial amounts in organ meats and fish liver oils, uh, and and to a le- to a lesser but somewhat significant am- amount in, in grass-fed dairy products. So. If you're eating a, a strict paleo diet, let's say, and you're not eating any organ meats, you're not taking cod liver oil, and you're not eating any dairy products, even though you're on a healthy diet overall, chances are you're not getting enough preformed vitamin A. And while we can convert some beta carotene, which is the precursor to preformed vitamin A, into retinol, that conversion is really poor in most people and, and very little actually gets converted, and in some people, almost nothing gets converted. So Mm. this is a big deal because vitamin A plays a really important role in the uh, visual health, health of the eyes, the immune system. Uh, It plays an important role in fetal development, so the growth of the baby in the womb. And uh, we, we suffer when we don't get enough of it, and I think that's happening not only in the standard American diet, but also in even in healthy diets like the paleo diet that aren't incorporating these these um, you know uh, organ meats and, and pasture pasture raised full fat dairy products. Mm-hmm. And of course, organ meats are barely ever included in American cooking nowadays. I mean, 
Right. Very rarely do you hear about that. Mostly just like liver and I mean liver worse, and you know the t- most kids would just oh just really grossed right. out about that. I mean, people usually yeah. wouldn't touch that with a ten foot pole at this point. But yeah. you know you write in your book that organ meats you say are nearly eighteen times more nutrient dense than whole grains, yeah. and eleven times more nutrient dense than than even cooked vegetables, which people yeah. think is probably one of the most healthier healthiest things you can have. Yeah. That's right. So. Those numbers came from some research that our, our colleague Matt Lalonde did and presented at the Ancestral Health Symposium a couple mm-hmm. years back. And uh, I think the, the really fascinating thing when you look at that data is that, uh, so it, it depends how we define nutrient density, but in Matt's research he chose to focus on the nutrients with the most research behind them and, and the most, that are most essential to health. And it's true that, that fruits and vegetables have some phytonutrients and antioxidants and things um, that are becoming, uh, that we're realizing are more, are important to health. And um, some of those aren't present in organ meats uh, and, and other animal products. So I'm not suggesting that, I just want to be clear, that fruits and vegetables aren't beneficial and we shouldn't be eating a lot of them. That's not at all what sure. I'm suggesting. But I am suggesting that organ meats and shellfish and cold-water fatty fish and other animal products are generally much higher in basic vitamins and minerals than fruits and vegetables and certainly grains and legumes. So, I mean, that's something that I don't think a lot of people are aware of. Now, how how many servings a week would you say would be a nice number to shoot for for organ meats? Just like ideally, how yeah, much yeah. of this should well, someone this eat? Well, this would be good news for people that don't like organ meats. You generally don't need much because they're so potent. You know, they're such potent superfoods. So three ounces of liver or uh, three, maybe three to six ounces at maximum would be plenty to uh, to shoot for. And... There are a few tricks for getting liver into your diet if you don't like liver, and I have a confession to make. I'm one of those people. I uh, do not love the taste of liver. I don't actually. It's not so much the taste; it's the texture of liver that bothers me. And I wish that wasn't the case. I wish my mom had fed me lots of liver when I was growing up, and I just loved it. But that's that's not the reality. So I've had to find ways to try to work it into my diet. So one of them is you just buy some fresh liver. Um, it's important to get uh, pasture-raised liver if possible, uh, like it is with all meats, but especially with organ meats. And you cut it up into small pieces about the size of an ice cube tray. And then you put the you put those pieces in the ice cube tray, and you and you put that whole tray in a in a freezer-safe Ziploc bag, and you put it all you put it in the freezer. And then the next time you're going to cook some meat, um, especially ground meat, it's easy to do this, you take out one of those pieces of liver and let it defrost, and you dice it really finely, and you mix it together with the ground meat, and you add some seasonings, and chances are you won't taste it at all. And if you do that every time you cook ground meat or meat in general, um, you mix a little bit of liver into your dishes all through the week, you'll probably get a substantial amount of liver. So that's one way to do it. Another way to do it is to buy some liver and slice it into small pieces about the size of a capsule that you would take, like a supplement, and then you put those out on a tray and you freeze them 
and then you cover the tray uh, with some kind of freezer-safe plastic, and you freeze them for two weeks, and the freezing for two weeks kills any uh, microbes that might be present in the liver, and then you just swallow them frozen as capsules, and uh, you, you'd, you could weigh it out to see how many you'd have to swallow for the, for the week, um, but that's another way of doing it. And then uh, just simply looking online, and um, I have a, 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 a recipe generator, a meal planner online. There are lots of cookbooks, um, especially if you look in the older cookbooks, um, older meaning you know from previous generations, because as you mentioned, Lauren, liver is not super popular fare. There's some great cookbooks on eating nose to tail that have good recipes for liver and organ meats. Um, it's you can if there's where there's a will, there's a way. That's what I'm trying to say. And, I, and, and <laughs> get creative, my job no is, excuses. Yeah, my job is to create the will and give you some ways, and then it's up to you to do it. Because I think once you understand how important these organ meats are, and why they're so important, and and um, just to give you a little more info on that, in a nutshell, these organ meats contain nutrients that work synergistically with the nutrients that are in muscle meats, which are the kind of meats we typically eat. And if you only eat muscle meats and you don't eat the organ meats and the bone broth and the more gelatinous, tougher cuts of meat like uh, oxtail and beef shanks and brisket and things like that, the the nutrients in the muscle meat won't benefit you the same way that they would if you were eating all those other cuts because they're not able to fulfill their important functions without the synergistic nutrients that are in those other parts of the animal. And I'm, I'm telling you definitely without question that when you a true paleo approach would include all of the parts of the animal. So when we look at hunter-gatherer cultures, um, contemporary hunter-gatherer cultures around the world, many, peop- many of them uh, definitely favored the, uh, all of them favored the organ meats. And some of them didn't even eat the muscle meats at all. They would just discard it, throw it to the dogs. So <laughs> we know that this was the typical way of eating for the majority of our evolutionary history. And even until fairly recently in the U.S., the organ meat consumption was pretty common. And in many other countries, it still is. Like in traditional Mexican cooking, they eat lengua, tongue, lots of other uh, Eastern European countries and Asian countries are still uh, organ meat consumption is still common. So it's really only in in the industri- uh, even in, in Belgium and France it's it's quite common foie gras. So uh, it's really mostly in the U.S. recently that it's fallen out of favor. Hmm, it's very interesting. So what what are, what are some of the nutrients I guess that's found specifically in the organ meats that's not in the muscle meats? Well, it's uh, partly a question of amount of nutrients uh, in addition to different nutrients. So vitamin A, as I mentioned, is one of the main ones um, that's, that's not really found in muscle meats but is, is very well represented in organ meats, especially liver. Then you have uh, folate, for example. It's really high in, things like, in, in chicken liver especially. Uh, folate is found in dark leafy greens and, and um, some other foods, but it's much, much higher in chicken liver than any of those foods. Uh, B12 is much higher in organ meats. It's, of course, also found in red meat like lamb and beef, but it's really orders of magnitude higher in organ meats and and in shellfish like clams. Um, 
then you have things like glycine, which are found in uh, or gelatinous cuts of meat, like the brisket, oxtail, etc., uh, and in bone broth, of course. And glycine uh, plays an important role in, in balancing our intake of methionine, which is the amino acid that's found in, in lean proteins, muscle meats and egg whites and things like that. And then you have uh, other B vitamins like B6 and then and choline, uh, which is found in egg yolks, rat not the whites. So these all together work synergistically with the nutrients that are in muscle meats and lean proteins. And uh, the name of the game is definitely the synergy, synergy between nutrients because it's the micronutrients that fuel all cellular and biological processes and without these nutrients and all of them working synergistically we will function but we will not function optimally that's the key point mhm i know you've done a lot of uh research and i know you presented on this at one of the paleo conferences i get them mixed up but it was on ferritin um and i know the liver is very high in iron so for someone who's a little high in iron already what would be a, a an organ meat you'd recommend uh if someone's high on in, in iron uh they may need to um pass on most organ meats depending on how high mm-hmm. they are and even some shellfish like clams and oysters until they deal with their iron levels um they could probably instead stick with cod liver oil because that's mostly that's fat and it does have vitamin A and vitamin D and, and some vitamin K2 but it doesn't have significant levels of iron in it mhm interesting i was just curious about that Cool. Let's take it to a couple of Facebook questions. So this question is from Jeff, and he wants to know, what are your best recommendations for breaking breaking the nighttime iPad habit and improving sleep for a night owl? Definitely something cavemen did not deal with, I'm sure. Yeah, so um, <laughs> probably not. Um, one of the biggest problems for modern people like us is exposure to artificial light. So this is another thing that has changed profoundly in our environment very recently. In fact, it's only artificial light has only been around for about 150, 160 years. Uh, so we're talking about a tiny blip on the evolutionary time scale. And it's, it's really interesting that, to me as a subject because it's something that I'm sure we're all grateful for. I mean, it's really nice to be able to have light at night and be able to, you know, work and see when you're cooking and all of these things. And and so it's not it's not something that has a clear downside unless you really look into the scientific research and, and understand it. But what uh, re- researchers have uh, come to understand is that Certain wavelengths of artificial light, blue light in particular, which is the light, kind of light that's emitted from your iPad when you're looking at it at night or your computer monitor or your TV to a lesser degree, it suppresses production of a hormone called melatonin in, in your body. And melatonin is a hormone that helps to regulate our sleep-wake cycles, our circadian rhythms. And... So, for example, uh, when the sun goes down, melatonin production starts to increase, and uh, melatonin reaches its peak in the evening, uh, and that's what helps you to be able to fall asleep and stay asleep. So if you are uh, looking at an iPad at 10.30 at night, the blue light that's coming from that screen is suppressing your natural melatonin production, and you will thus... uh, 
have difficulty falling asleep and difficulty staying asleep because of that artificial light exposure. So one tip that I offer to everybody who's having trouble falling asleep or staying asleep at night is controlling your exposure to artificial light. And there are a few ways that you can do that. Number one would be, if possible, to restrict your use of devices that emit this kind of light to uh, two hours before bedtime. So if you're going to bed at 10.30, you would stop using these devices uh, by around 8.30. And I've found for most people, TV is not as onerous. doesn't have as big of an impact as like a, a laptop or, or a tablet, perhaps in part because most people aren't sitting a foot away from the TV like they are from their computer monitor or tablet, but I think also it has to do with the wavelength of light. Um, but definitely, you know, restricting tablet use and laptop computer use to a couple hours before bed. Uh, another tip, and especially one if, if that's not possible for you, would be to get some orange goggles. Um, if you go to Amazon, just search for orange goggles. They'll, they'll pop right up. They're only about eight or nine bucks. And what these do is they filter out the wavelengths of blue light that suppress melatonin. And I've had patients who have had weeks or, or excuse me, years of insomnia that didn't respond to any kind of treatment that were able to almost completely eradicate it just by wearing these orange goggles after the sun goes down as soon as they turn on the artificial lights because it naturally helps to regulate melatonin production. Hmm. In terms of nutrition, uh, I've, I think... There are a few tips that, I mean, it really depends on the individual circumstance, so it's hard to make specific recommendations. But in general, it's good to go to bed not too hungry and not too full. Uh, I've found for most patients that eating a really low-carb diet all day can sometimes, and through the, through the evening, can sometimes contribute to insomnia. So uh, if you're on like a strict paleo, low-carb type of diet, adding some carbohydrate like some sweet potatoes or fruit, other starchy plants in the evening especially uh, can really help to, with serotonin production and help, help you to relax and sleep more deeply. So uh, hopefully those are, are a couple basic tips that, can, that will be useful. Awesome. I could probably use a few of those tips myself lately. <laughs> yeah, it's not um, easy. That's what I love about these shows is it always just reminds me to get back on track with myself. So yeah. it's, I, I do yeah. it selfishly. Uh, this question is from uh, Susanna, and she wants to know, um, what do you think about eating legumes? Is it ever acceptable? After three years legume-free, I really miss having beans in my chili or a bit of hummus. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I have a different take on this than a lot of paleo authors, as you'll see if you read my book. Um, the problem with legumes and grains, as, as we discussed earlier, is they're not very nutrient-dense compared to other foods like organ meats and meats and, and fruits and vegetables. However, that doesn't mean that they can't be incorporated into a, a diet that is very nutrient-dense overall in moderation particularly when they're prepared properly in such a way that reduces their anti-nutrients. So grains and legumes contain something called phytic acid, which inhibits min the absorption of the minerals that are found in the grains and legumes. 
So if you soak the soak each grain or legume requires slightly different technique, but if you soak them generally for you know 12 to 24 hours um, and before you cook them, that decreases the phytic acid content of the grains and makes the the minerals and uh, vitamins more bioavailable. And uh, the problem was that when cultures were relying exclusive, almost exclusively on grains and legumes, like they were eating mostly grain at the at the expense of other more nutrient dense foods, that can lead to problems. But if you are eating mostly a very nutrient dense diet, and you want to incorporate a small amount of properly prepared, soaked, or fermented, or sprouted grains and legumes, I don't think there's any evidence that suggests that that's a problem uh, if you tolerate them well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I fully agree with that as well. Okay, last question here I'm going to take from Facebook. I'm sorry to all the other questions, but we ran out of time. Uh, this is from Noelle. And she went, <laughs> I know, it's so easy to talk about this stuff. Noelle wants to know, what is your go-to starting place for advising beginner paleo eaters switching from a standard American diet to a paleo diet when it looks daunting to them? Um, I'm not sure I completely, my, my starting place in terms of like resources, I'm guessing. Um, or just maybe asking. like what, what are the, the initial steps they should take when they're yeah. switching to a paleo diet from like, you know, yeah. a standard American diet and it just yeah, seems really overwhelming. Right. So, um, I, there's a couple things here. One, I'm sure every, uh, many people have heard of this 30 day challenge. I call it a 30 day reset in my book, which is where you, Follow a strict paleo diet for 30 days, and the idea is you're you're eliminating the foods that most often cause problems, and you're really kind of hitting the reset button on your body and, and getting a fresh start, uh, reducing inflammation, reducing cravings, uh, losing weight, feeling more energetic, and, and then you have a starting place from which you can start adding in some gray area foods that are healthy when they're well tolerated and doing a lot of tweaking. So... I outline that whole three-step process in my book, and for many people that works really well, and that's what I'd recommend for someone that's just starting out in general. In fact, that's really what my book is all about, is taking people through that three-step process. However, there are people for whom a a really dramatic, uh, restrictive 30-day elimination diet, like a strict paleo diet, is just too daunting. And and they're just the type of people that don't make changes that way. They prefer to ease into it, and, and it works better for them when they do that, or because of their life circumstances, that's all that's possible. So for those people, I recommend a more measured approach where they would basically choose one meal a day to start eating paleo. So let's say it's breakfast, um, which is often easy for people because most people are at home and are able to cook breakfast. So... Uh, they would you know, get my book or another book and um, get some recipes, uh, prepare their, clean out their pantry, pant- start cleaning out their pantry a little bit, you know, go shopping, get some paleo uh, ing- ing- ingredients and, and plan some breakfast, and then just start having breakfast, only paleo breakfast for, for a period of time. And then uh, once you feel like you're getting some benefits from that and you have a handle on that, then go to breakfast and dinner. 
and do that for a period of time and then and then uh you know finally add lunch and and all the other foods and uh you'll be on a on your own paleo type of diet so there are a couple of different ways to get into it depending on your personal preference and how you make changes most successfully i don't think it matters how you do it what matters is that you do and you're successful doing it yeah, and just give yourself some some ease and and be easy mm-hmm. on yourself and and really build on the successes. You know, I think it's uh, yeah. I'm, I'm always so inspired by my patients who go from the typical American diet to eating paleo, and there's a learning curve, right? It doesn't happen overnight, and you eventually learn that everything has gluten in it, and you had no idea, you know. Yeah. Um, oftentimes, some of your favorite substances on earth, um, but eventually you get there, and then you you feel so much better. So you know, I would. Totally agree with that, um, Noel. I, I, Noel is also a naturopathic doctor too, so I, I assume it's for patients. But I would just say to really just be their cheerleader and build on the successes, and um, before they know it, they're they're on their way. So it's great. Absolutely. Yeah, Chris, I can't believe we talked for an hour already. It's <laughs> yeah, crazy we could to just me. Go on forever, huh? I know, easy. I know. But I know that oh. you're a busy guy, and I'm sure you need to go and get to your family. I'd love to hear if there's any parting words you have for us before we let you go. Well, I I hope um, I, I, this book was really a labor of love for me, and I hope it clears up some confusion and misconceptions about the paleo. And I'm I really, ultimately, am a huge believer in personalization, and I I think that you, the listener, the reader, are the ultimate authority on what works for you. And my job as an educator is to is to give you some resources and information, point you in the right direction and give you the tools that you need to figure out what works for you. But at the end of the day, my my wish is that after you go through the book and the three-step process that I outline, you won't have to, have to listen to gurus about diet anymore, including me, because you'll you'll know what works for you and you'll know how to adapt your plan as you your life changes and as you as your circumstances change, and and ultimately that's what I'm most excited about is empowering people to do that. Mm, amen. Well, it definitely comes through in your book, so I, I I thank you for reading this. It's a it's a helpful tool for me that I can give my patients because I can only do so much in an hour visit. This is something yeah. they get to dive into it and learn things for themselves. So I, I appreciate you writing the book, and congratulations and best of luck with the launch. I'm sure you'll crush it <laughs> and heal it too, and it. heal people in the meantime. So. I'm, awesome I'm stuff. Uh, appreciative of the opportunity. I always enjoy our conversations. You're a great interviewer, and it's and it's a pleasure to to be here again. And I look forward to seeing you at the next uh, conference. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks, Chris. Have a great night. I'll I'll see you soon. Right, you too. Take care. Okay. Bye. You too. Bye. All right. Thanks, you guys. Thanks for tuning in to another show. And uh, thank you, thank you, thank you for uh, being with me for the last 100 episodes. Today was episode number 100. So glad I got to uh, spend that with Chris Kresser on the show. Um, You know, I I just appreciate all your listens, all the support, all the emails, and, um, you know, all, all of the sharing of this with your friends and your family. And I'm so glad that this show has been able to help so many of you listening um, and I'd love to hear, uh, you know, what we can do better for the next 100 episodes. And uh, if you could leave a review on iTunes, I would love that. I read all of them uh, personally. So thank you for the, the reviews you guys have left. And uh, have a wonderful rest of your week. I highly recommend this book, Your Personal Paleo Code. And I hope that uh, it really helps you, helps you guys with your health um, and living that kind of lifestyle in the craziness of the 21st century. It's very doable. So 
Thanks again, you guys, from the bottom of my heart, and I will catch you guys next week. Bye. North Pole Hotline, help! My in-laws are hosting Thanksgiving, and we're bringing the dressing. You mean stuffing? No, dressing. I need cute outfits for everyone. Get to Old Navy. Old Navy? Yep, Old Navy's kicking off the holidays with stylish denim, velvet tops, the season's best dresses, and 40% off your entire purchase now through Tuesday. 40% off? We'll be stuffing our shopping bags full. And don't forget colorful sweaters and amazing outerwear, too. You can even buy online and pick up in store for free. Ooh, I love an all-you-can-wear buffet. Holiday your heart out at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1118 to 1120. Exclusion supply. See stores for details. North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's giving $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10.